book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 15. historical context here is Abraham has recently come into the land of Canaan and then shortly afterwards his nephew Lot left toward Sodom and was caught up in a conflict between the king of Sodom and some other kings and Abraham stepped in and delivered Lot. And then Lot went back to Sodom. In the, in the meantime, God has made a promise to Abraham, to Abram at this time, that he would have a son. But that hasn't, been, that hasn't happened yet. So Genesis 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? And the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven, and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. And he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? And he said unto him, Take me an heifer of three years old, and a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he took unto him all these and divided them in the midst, and laid each piece one against another, but the birds divided he not. And when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. When the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and lo, and horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said unto Abram, this is God speaking, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterward shall they come out with great substance. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace, thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And it came to pass, and it came to pass, that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. In the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land, from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Cadmonites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Rephaims and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Girgashites and the Jebusites. So far we read in God's Word. May the Lord bless that reading to our hearts this morning. And now let's consider the instruction in Lord's Day 23 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Question 59 asks, having worked through all the articles of the Apostles' Creed and believing what those articles teach us, what, what, but what doth it profit thee now that thou believest all this? Answer, that I am righteous in Christ before God and an heir of eternal life. How art thou righteous before God? Only by a true faith in Jesus Christ, so that though my conscience accuse me that I have grossly transgressed all the commandments of God and kept none of them, and am still inclined to all evil, notwithstanding God, without any merit of mine, but only of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, even so as if I never had had nor committed any sin, 
Yea, as if I had fully accomplished all that obedience which Christ has accomplished for me, inasmuch as I embrace such benefit with a believing heart. Why sayest thou that thou art righteous by faith only? Not that I am acceptable to God on account of the worthiness of my faith, but because only the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ is my righteousness before God and that I cannot receive and apply the same to myself any other way than by faith only. The hunger for approval. This is why many young men and women spend so much time counting the likes on their social media posts. This is why people form tribes and groups that rally around dynamic and charismatic leaders. This is the driving motivation behind the gay pride marches. This explains why we think often that we have to have that house, why we have to drive that kind of car, why we have to wear this brand of clothing. Everyone wants to be approved and accepted. And there are all kinds of ways that we have for garnering that approval and acceptance for ourselves. Well, it is basically in this realm of approval and acceptance that the category of righteousness fits. The word righteousness means that there is a standard for determining whether someone should be approved and accepted or not. Not just anybody and not just everybody is righteous. That is why we have judges and juries and prisons in our nation. A man who is judged to be a criminal by the standards of the law is not accepted back into society, is not approved in society, but is put in prison. To be righteous is to be worthy of acceptance. To be guilty is to be rightfully cast out and rejected as a lawbreaker. But the person whose acceptance and approval matters the most is not any judge in the court of law in our nation or any other nation. The person whose approval and acceptance matters the most is not the unknown people who click their like buttons on our social media posts. It's not the political tribe that I identify with or the cause that I involve myself in. It's not society it's not my group of friends. It's not any man, woman, or other person that I run into in life. It's God. If God accepts me and if God approves me, then all of those other people do not matter one iota as far as my hunger and need for approval being met. If God accepts me, then I am worthy, period. God accepts me, then I have the right to eternal life and a place in His home. And there is only one way according to which God will accept me. I must be righteous according to His standards. That is, the standards of His law. And there's only one place where I can find such righteousness. And it's not out there. And it's not in here. It's only in union with Jesus Christ. True righteousness and therefore acceptance with God, which is the only acceptance ultimately that matters, is found in Christ. In Christ alone call our attention to Lord's Day 23 this morning. And the theme for this sermon is Righteous in Christ Alone. 
First, what it's based on. Finally, or secondly, how it's mine. And there we're looking at the means that God gives whereby I make that righteousness my own, which is a true faith. Secondly, or finally, why it profits me. First, what it's based on. We need a basis, a solid ground for our righteousness with God. When I say basis or solid ground, what I mean is we need reasons which will hold up our claim to be righteous with God. If you walk into a stranger's house, he's going to ask you, what are you doing here? Why have you entered into my house? And you better have good reasons. Your reasons will be the difference between your being received in as a guest and your being booted out as an intruder. Well, the question comes to you this morning as you enter into the sanctuary of God's house and the question will come to you on a future day when you anticipate leaving this life and entering into the life that is to come. Why should God receive you? Why should God accept you? What are you doing in His house? And you better have good reasons. The need for a solid basis for our righteousness with God comes from at least three considerations that have to do with who God is and who we are and then what we have become. First of all, our need for a basis of righteousness comes from a consideration of who God is. God is a righteous God. And when I say God is righteous, I do not mean that God measures up according to the standards of righteousness, although that's true. If you compare God's life and God's activity to the standard of His law, you will find that it measures up. But when I say that God is righteous, I don't mean He measures up to the standards. I mean He is the standard. Romans 9 verse 14 says, What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? And the answer is, God forbid. How can there be unrighteousness with God when righteousness itself has its basis in God? Apart from God, there is no such thing as righteousness. God is righteous. That's who and what He is. And because God is a righteous God, He cannot tolerate unrighteousness. Now sometimes we talk about this in a way where it might make it sound as if God is petty that he has his way of doing things, and if he doesn't get his way, then he gets upset because his standards have been messed up. That's how the cynical unbeliever wants to portray God. The cynical unbeliever wants to portray God in such a way that God creates all of these standards and they're impossible for anybody to measure up to, and he's always watching us to, to find when it is that we will fall, when, when it is that we will fail. And they make God look very small-minded and petty. The truth of the matter, though, is that the righteousness of God is what stands behind everything that is good in the world. The truth of the matter is that the righteousness of God is what stands behind everything that is beautiful, everything that is wholesome, everything that is true, everything that is worthwhile. Apart from God and His righteousness, there is nothing good. Apart from God and His righteousness, there is no beauty. There is no meaning. If God were to allow His righteousness to be undermined, there would be no reason to expect that there will ever be anything like true and lasting peace. If God would allow His righteousness to be undermined, there would be no reason for us to expect that there would be anything like true joy, true hope, true goodness. It all rests on a God who is righteous, which is why the Bible says God is a God who cannot deny Himself in 2 Timothy 2, verse 12. If God denied Himself, denied His righteousness by allowing His righteousness to be undermined and challenged, that act would not only diminish His own glory, but it would be an act of cruelty to His creation and His creatures because it would undermine all goodness. 
all truth, all beauty, all peace. God is righteous, and that's a good thing. We want him to be. And therefore, we need reasons if we're going to walk into God's house and be accepted. God will not allow all truth and all goodness and all beauty to crumble to pieces only for our sakes. He's too righteous for that. The second reason we need a solid basis for our righteousness comes from a consideration of who we are. That is, who we are as God created us. God created us as creatures who have a hunger for approval. And that hunger for approval is not a bad impulse in and of itself. What is bad is when we hunger for approval in the wrong places and seek approval in the wrong places or force approval when that approval is unwarranted. But it's not wrong that we hunger for approval. It's not wrong for a husband to crave the approval of his wife or for a wife to desire the commendations of her husband. And certainly it's not wrong to desire God's approval. In fact, this is the primary characteristic of a godly person. A godly person is a person who hungers and thirsts after righteousness. A godly person is a person who wants God's approval, wants God's approval in the way that God gives approval and according to God's standards of approval. Well, the only way that this hunger for approval will ever be satisfied truly is if we have a basis for our righteousness with God, reasons whereby we can be declared righteous with God. Furthermore, God created us not only with a hunger for approval, but He created us with a conscience. Your conscience is your soul's counterpart to the law of God. God's law judges us from the outside as an objective standard which measures the thoughts and actions and behavior of all people. The conscience is the counterpart to God's law that judges us from the inside. The conscience is the witness on the inside of every man, woman, and child that ensures that every person knows the difference between what is right and what is wrong. Romans 2 verse 15 says that even a man who has never heard of the Ten Commandments has a conscience that bears witness in his thoughts, accusing or else excusing them. In other words, making it clear in the heart of every human being, even those who've never received any special revelation from God, that there is a difference between right and wrong, that there is a God, that there is judgment that is coming. When you do not have reasons upon which to base your righteousness, one or two things are going to happen to your conscience. One possibility is that you will end up beating your conscience into submission to silence your conscience because you don't want to hear what your conscience is telling you. Your conscience is telling you you're a lawbreaker, you're a lawbreaker, you're a lawbreaker, and you say, I don't want to hear what you have to say. And so you break the conscience, like somebody who takes a hammer to an alarm clock that's going off. Think of the drunk who does everything that he can to drown his conscience, taking drink after drink after drink. The other possibility is that your conscience is going to be constantly going off, like an internal alarm bell that gives you no peace. Before Martin Luther found the peace of the gospel, of justification by faith alone, he would spend hours and hours and hours confessing every little sin down to the minutest details to his confessor in the monastery. And when he wasn't confessing his sins, he'd be following all the steps that the Roman Catholic Church taught him to follow in order to absolve his conscience. And he never found peace to the extent that he even wrote that he feared God to the point of hating God because he saw God as righteous, 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 and he had no way of satisfying God's expectations. So we need reasons that can be set before our conscience in order to keep us from going down either one of those paths, both of which are harmful to the soul. Then the final consideration 
that shows that we need a basis for our righteousness comes from the fact of what we have become in our first father, Adam, and what we are in our everyday lived experience, which is sinners. The fact is, our conscience tends to accuse us every day. And the reason our conscience accuses us is because of what we are in our first father, Adam, and what we have done every day. What actions we have taken, what thoughts we have thought, what feelings we have felt. You and I have grossly transgressed all the commandments of God, the Lord's Day tells us, and have kept none of them. It does not matter how good of people we seem to be or how good of people we try to be. It does not matter what church we belong to. It does not matter what experiences we have had in this life, what kind of pain we have endured in this life. The conscience tells us what we are, and what we are is unrighteous, deserving nothing from God, not His approval, not His acceptance, not a single blessing. And what's most painful about that, if we are truly in tune to what our conscience is saying, is that the conscience isn't lying when it tells us that. The conscience is telling the truth. And we know that it's telling the truth because we have something to confirm it by, which is the standard of God's law. We can go and we can look at God's law and we can find written there all of His commandments. And when we look at those commandments, we find that's right. What my conscience is telling me is that I've broken every single one of those commandments. I haven't kept those commandments. I haven't kept them today. I haven't kept them this week. I haven't kept them this year. I haven't kept them one minute of my life. That means there better be some pretty powerful arguments to counteract what the conscience and what the law of God tells me. I need a basis, a solid ground, reasons that would establish my righteousness with God. So what is that basis? And the only answer to that question is Jesus Christ. Righteousness for any man, woman, or child is to be found in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. That's what the Lord's Day says. What doth it profit thee now that thou believest all this? Answer, that I am righteous in Christ. Why sayest thou, question and answer 61, that thou art righteous by faith only? Not that I am acceptable to God on account of the worthiness of my faith, but because only the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ is my righteousness before God. And that I cannot receive and apply the same to myself any other way than by faith only. Why Jesus Christ is the only basis for our righteousness with God is shown in quite a striking way. In the story we read in Genesis 15, God's command for Abraham to kill those animals and to divide them in pieces might seem strange to us, but it was a common practice in those days. It was a way to confirm the faithfulness of two people who were entering into a very serious relationship. The two people would come together and they would walk through the middle of those slaughtered animals. So imagine animals that have been cut in two, making a path in between them. And these two parties then would walk through the middle of that path. And that was sealing the relationship between these two people. It's like when a husband and a wife put rings on each other's fingers as a symbol of their constant faithfulness and abiding love. But the symbolism of the dead animals is this. If I should fail to uphold faithfulness and truth in the relationship, then let me be like one of those animals. Let my blood be shed. Let me be slaughtered like those animals were slaughtered and like their blood was shed. That's how serious this is. That's how important this relationship is. And this is the measure that must be taken in order to protect this relationship that is founded in righteousness and truth. Now what is so striking about the story in Genesis 15 
is that in the Old Testament days, as I said, this was a common practice and you would have two individuals who would walk through to solidify their relationship. But in the story in Genesis 15, what do we find? There's only one person who walks through. Abraham makes the preparations, but then he sits on the sidelines. In fact, if you look at verse 12, it appears that Abraham was not even awake when this happened. When the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and lo, and horror of great darkness fell upon him. He's there, inert, unconscious, sleeping on the sidelines. And the next thing we read about is God making a promise to Abraham that he will realize his covenant with Abraham in Abraham's generations and to Abraham personally. And then after God pronounces his covenant promise, what does he do? While a smoking furnace and a burning lamp pass between the pieces of those animals, not Abraham, but God in the figure of that smoking furnace and burning lamp walk between the pieces of those animals, which is to say that God passes through those animals to seal His covenant and His faithfulness, and He passes through those animals alone. Well, what's God doing there? What He's doing is He's binding Abraham to Himself in the covenant, and by doing so, He is accepting full responsibility for the righteousness of Abraham and for the righteousness of Abraham's seed. It is not on you, Abraham, to find a reason in yourself or in your circumstances anyway or, in any, or to find a basis for your righteousness there. What God is saying to Abraham is this, I am your righteousness and your righteousness is all bound up in me. When you fail, Abraham, as certainly you will, as you already have, in fact, I will ensure that your standing before me is protected and established and vindicated. And before I let you down in this matter, God is saying, I will die myself. Let the one who passes through these slaughtered animals Be like those slaughtered animals if righteousness and truth is not upheld in this relationship and God passes through those animals by Himself. There's quite a foreshadowing here of the coming of Christ and the work of Christ as our mediator, isn't there? Here in Genesis 15, we read of God making His promise, sealing it through a symbol and through a vision. But God kept that promise. When Abraham sinned against God repeatedly, and if you read through the rest of Genesis, you'll find sins of Abraham and sins of Abraham's seed. But when Abraham and Israel and you and I sinned against God repeatedly, who took the hit? God did. And I don't mean that in a flippant way. God took the hit. The cost was paid by Him. He came in our flesh to bear our guilt and our unworthiness. He was torn in pieces. He was slaughtered, body and soul, under the wrath of the lawgiver to ensure our righteous standing before that lawgiver. He lived, and all during the course of his life, he suffered, and then he died. Then he rose again to give us a solid basis for our righteousness. Therefore, the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ is my satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness. Now compare that just briefly to some of the alternatives, beloved. Compare that to some of the other places where we might turn to find righteousness and satisfaction and holiness with God. Good works. Are my good works 
a good enough reason for me to claim standing and approval and acceptance with God? When I die and fall into the hands of my Creator and God asks me, why should I give you a place in my house? Is my answer, is your answer going to be, well, because I did this and I did that in the course of my life. Look at the good things that I did. We're going to look at that in greater detail in the next Lord's Day. But already we can see good works are not good enough and they can never be good enough to be the standard for our righteousness with God. Belgic Confession Article 24 says, Though we do good works, we do not found our salvation upon them, for we do not work but what is polluted by our flesh and also punishable, even our good works because they're polluted by our flesh, are punishable and therefore are not a basis for righteousness with God. But what about our faith? Are we not righteous by faith? And doesn't that mean faith must be a reason, part of the basis for my righteousness with God? That would be the implication of Arminianism. Where the decisive factor which makes a man have standing with God is the decision that he makes out of his free will. But that's just as bad as if my righteousness were based upon my good works. It might even be worse. Because if we look at our Christian life, and if we look at our faith even, what we find is the same struggle exists there in our faith as it exists in all of life. My faith is not constant. Your faith is not constant. It goes up and it goes down. Sometimes it's stronger. Sometimes it's weaker. What was Jesus' name for his disciples so often? O ye of little faith, he called them. No, as the catechism says in answer 61, I'm not acceptable to God on account of the worthiness of my faith as if that were the decisive factor that gives me standing with God. Rather, the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ is my righteousness before God. Not good works. Not faith. Not anything other than Christ is my basis for acceptance and approval with God. But that leads us into the second point of the sermon this morning, which is this. If our righteousness is not based on good works and is not based on our faith, then what is the importance of believing? And why are we called to believe? And why is faith such an important part of our Christian life and experience? Well, according to the Catechism, faith is how the righteousness that I have in Christ is my righteousness. We are not righteous on the basis of our faith, but we are righteous by our faith, which serves as a God-given instrument whereby I appropriate God's right, the righteousness of Christ to myself. Think of it this way. Faith is the God-given link between me and the righteousness of Christ. On the one hand, faith is the link between me and the righteousness of Christ from God's perspective. God unites me to Jesus Christ by a powerful work of His Spirit. The result of that union is that God sees me always in Jesus Christ. And what is true of Jesus Christ is true of me, therefore. If Jesus Christ is guilty and condemned, then I am guilty and condemned in Him. If Jesus Christ is righteous and vindicated, then I am righteous and vindicated in Him. That side of it is very important, that Faith is our link to Jesus Christ from God's perspective. That's important because it means that Christ is my righteousness no matter how I may feel about that at any given moment. There are times when I don't feel strongly the approval of God. There are times in my life when I actually fear His disapproval. Now that could be because there is sin in my life and I'm called to mortify that sin in repentance and I'm called to believe. But that could also be sometimes that I'm simply struggling with a weak faith and therefore I have this feeling of disapproval. 
But faith is not a synonym for how much I feel like I am righteous before God. 1 John 3, verse 20 says, If our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. The fact that I have faith at all points back to the greater work of God that unites me to Jesus Christ. And that work is certain and secure, resting in God. On the other hand, because of this union, this link that God establishes between me and Christ, faith becomes a link from our perspective also. And this is really what the Bible is talking about when it says that we are justified by faith. It's talking about the way in which those reasons that we have in Christ form the basis for our righteousness. That it's talking about the way in which those reasons become my reasons upon which I base my righteousness. By faith, which is a certain knowledge and an assured confidence, Lord's Day 7, by faith, I know this Jesus Christ. By faith, I know him with a certain knowledge because I find him in Scripture where God has revealed him. By faith, I know his life. I know him as the one who was born of a virgin who entered into spiritual and physical destitution for the sake of his people. By faith, I know him as the one who suffered on the cross. By faith, I know him as the one who laid down his life in the place of his sheep. By faith, I know his death. And I know that his death is God's final word with regard to the sins of all whom God has willed to save. By faith, I know that Jesus arose from the dead by faith, I know that Jesus ascended into heaven and sits at God's right hand and there reigns as the one who is triumphant over death and sin. By faith, I know the outpouring of the Spirit. By faith, I know that there is the church that the Spirit has formed and that I am and forever shall remain a living member of that church and that I belong to the communion of the saints. By faith, I know that that same Jesus who laid down his life is coming again as the judge. And I know all of these things. And not only do I know them, but I put myself right in the middle of them all. It's not just that I know that Jesus suffered and died for the atonement of his people, but he suffered and died for my atonement. It's not just that I know that Jesus Christ is coming again to raise the quick and the dead, but He's coming again to raise me from the dead. I accept that as true. And I live all of my life from the standpoint that this is true. Nothing could be truer than that Jesus Christ is, is dead and risen and that I am dead and risen with Him. That's the lifeblood of the Christian confession that is in the Apostles' Creed that we have been working through article by article as a congregation. And if that's true, beloved, what I believe, what you believe, then I am righteous before God and an heir of eternal life. And that's true even if I don't feel like it in a particular given moment. That's true even if my conscience accuses me that I've grossly transgressed all the commandments of God and kept none of them. I have an answer for my conscience by faith. Abraham believed God and he counted it to him for righteousness. It's not that Abraham believed God and then God measured up the value of Abraham's faith and said, wow, Abraham... What a good faith you have. What, what great and strong faith you have. I'm going to add the value of your faith to all of your other merits and declare that you're righteous because of those things. No, what mattered far more than Abraham's faith was who Abraham believed in. And he believed in God. Abraham believed in the Lord, we read, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. And specifically, he was believing in the Lord who was in the act of telling Abraham about the coming of the Christ. Abraham, this Eliezer shall not be your heir, but one who comes out of your own bowels. 
Your own seed is going to be your heir. And we know what the book of Galatians says about the seed of Abraham in Galatians 3, verse 16. He saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed which is Christ. In other words, when Abraham believed in the Lord and it was counted to him for righteousness, he was believing in Christ. And that's how he knew that God was his shield and his exceeding great reward. That's how he knew that God really did accept him and approve of him and would fulfill his promise to him. His believing was his link to Christ who was in his bowels and whom God promised would be born. Practically speaking, what does this mean in terms of our daily lived experience? Well, I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that you will never wrestle with doubts as a Christian believer. That's one of the interesting things about this passage. When God comes to Abraham, he's wrestling with doubts. He had just come off of a pretty bad experience with the departure of Lot into Sodom and Gomorrah. And I think I said it incorrectly when I was introducing the passage. It wasn't just recently that Abraham had come into Canaan, but some time had passed. And he still did not have a seed. He still did not have a son. And he was becoming an old man. And he was wondering... Has God changed his mind? Maybe I'm not going to have a child after all. Maybe it's this Eliezer who will be my heir. The lived experience of the Christian is that sometimes he has doubts and wrestles with those doubts. We're not always so conscious of our righteousness with God. Now that's not commendable on our part. That's not something to be praised. But it is a reality. That's the reality. When we live in a broken and fallen world, we're prone to doubt. We're prone to fear. We are, O ye of little faith. So it doesn't mean we won't ever have doubts. What it means is this. Every time those doubts do come, as a believing child of God, you have an answer for them. You have what even Abraham did not have. For you see Jesus in his finished work. You see him dead and risen again and glorified. You see his sacrifice and his atonement. You see him as a sacrifice that was greater than the slaughter of any of those animals that Abraham saw that smoking lamp pass through. And now when your conscience comes around and accuses you and goes off like an alarm bell and says, Sinner! Sinner! Unrighteous! You have a reason. And you can hold that reason up. And you can rest on it. That's the idea of a basis. That's the idea of a foundation. It's something you can put your unsure foot on. And that's faith. And being justified by faith. God imputes what is Christ's to you who believes in Him. Which means instead of your conscience getting drowned in a bottle of whiskey or going haywire in alarm mode, it has an answer. And you can live your life before the face of God as one who knows that answer and who is in your lived experience, therefore, righteous before God and approved by Him. Not only in moments of crisis and doubt, but every day. And that brings us to the prophet The Lord's Day asks, this is the first question, 59, what 
Doth it profit thee now that thou believest all this? That I am righteous in Christ before God and an heir of eternal life. What we have to understand about that answer on the one hand is this. There's profit in this for its own sake. To be righteous with God is profitable for its own sake. What I mean is, you can add nothing to that statement. And it's still an amazing benefit all by itself. But I'm righteous with God. Even if there's no heaven that comes from being righteous with God. Even if there are no other benefits that come from being righteous with God. Just to be righteous with God. Just to have standing with God. To be accepted by Him. When all the world is trying to be accepted by the social media crowd or by the rest of society or by peers, I'm accepted and approved by the Creator of the universe. That's a benefit in and of itself. That's why God begins the way He does when He comes to Abraham sitting there in his doubts and fears. Abraham, I am your shield. I am your exceeding great reward. You do not really need any other benefits than me, Abraham. You do not need a family legacy. You do not need the land of Canaan and its milk and honey. I am your reward. I am your blessing. I approve of you. I receive of you. And therefore, when I give you all those other things, they only build upon this great fundamental and foundational blessing, which is that you are mine and I'm yours and our relationship is based in righteousness and truth. Abraham, smile. God is your friend. That's amazing. And we ought to think about that. And when we do think about that and think about it rightly, it should make all the other concerns that we have in life seem rather petty and small in comparison. We're all worried about this or that. And half of it has to do with other people and what other people think about me. But this is what God thinks about you. If you are a believer in His Son, Jesus Christ, you are acceptable and worthy. Worthy to be His friend and companion forever and ever. You have standing with Him. You have a place in His house. He receives you with open arms. Of course, if you're not a believer, the situation is very different. And rather than finding a smile on God's face, you'll find a frown. And rather than approval, you'll find disapproval. Don't conclude from that that, that's, that it's hopeless for you then. Don't conclude from that that you need to silence your conscience with a bottle of whiskey and run from God. Rather, the Bible calls us to repentance and it calls us to faith. Seek and you will find. Knock and it shall be answered unto you. Come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, Jesus says. And the Bible issues that call to us. And the Bible issues that call to any who are unbelieving. There is no greater benefit in all the world than to have God as our friend. Believe. Come. You will find rest. But there's also this. Because we are righteous with God, we are also heirs of eternal life. Which is to say that everything that is ours in Christ, or everything that is God's, is ours in Christ. Everything that belongs to God is given to His children. Life. 
blessedness, joy, the whole world and everything in the world, the whole family of God and everyone who belongs to that family, all ours, every blessing that belongs to God, belongs to His children, belongs to His people. That includes renewal. Renewal of our lives, transformation of our lives after the image of Jesus Christ. A new and holy life of good works by the power of the Spirit. That's an important part of our salvation that flows out of our justification. And not just that we do good works, but that we grow in them, and that we develop in them, and that we mature in the Christian life. As the Apostle says in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, we go from glory to glory. We receive and we grow in and we develop and we bring forth the fruit of the Spirit. Those are blessings. So it profits us, beloved. It profits us that we believe all these things. It profits us by restoring to us life, a life worth living by the Spirit of God. It profits us by giving us hope for eternal life in heaven. And most of all, it profits us this way. And no matter where we may be, no matter what we may be doing, if we believe in Jesus Christ, as we believe in Jesus Christ, God approves of us. He accepts of us. That's an amazing benefit, an amazing profit, which belongs to the Christian who is righteous in Christ alone. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank Thee for this inestimable blessing. How can we calculate the worth? How can we calculate the value of the gift of Thyself and of Thy Son Jesus Christ and everything that comes from belonging to Him? We pray, O Father, let the beauty and the glory of the Gospel live in our hearts and be impressed upon our minds and bring forth fruit in our lives as we find peace and rest for our conscience and as being set free from the chains of guilt and sin, we bring forth fruit to thy glory and live a new and transformed life. Well, Father, when we struggle with doubts and fears, and when we get entangled again in sin and in the flesh, we pray let this gospel find us again and be declared to us again and set us free that we may live more and more close to Thee. Send us away from Thy house this morning with Thy blessing upon us. And hear our prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.